Will you take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I believe we'll do more than one verse this week. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll begin down there in verse 7, which is the verse we preached last week. And uh, we'll go down to verse 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Amen. And may the Lord add the blessing to his holy and inerrant word. Last week, we spent our whole time on chapter 4, verse 7, as we talked about having great treasure in clay pots. In this analogy, we are the clay pots, and the great treasure is the word of the gospel brought to bear upon the heart of a man or a woman. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit to every believer, despite the fact that we are simply jars of clay. Excuse me. The comparison is given to illustrate the weakness of man. We delude ourselves into thinking that We are more than we really are. All we really are is simply an old clay pot. The illustration would have hit home with the Corinthian believers. They saw clay pots everywhere they went. They were feeble. These pots were easily breakable. They were often used for storing garbage. But Paul's point is that in this case, God uses old clay pots to store the greatest treasure in the whole world. It is an illustration not only of our weakness, but of the necessity of Christians to trust in God. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are completely dependent upon God. And he uses what is to him the equivalent of ordinary clay pots so that no one will be confused as to who is the engine of, for success in ministry. It will be God who gets the credit. Paul was accused of his opponents, of, by his opponents of being weak. They questioned his apostolic authority because it seemed that everywhere that Paul went, he was assaulted or imprisoned or persecuted or he endured some great suffering. And so they sowed discontent among the Corinthian believers by suggesting that his suffering and his weakness were indicators that God's frown was upon him. And here's what Paul does. Paul doesn't deny the fact that he is weak. He embraces it. He agrees with his opponents. But he has an answer as to the reason for why he's so weak. And it's this, so that everyone will know that the surpassing power found in the gospel belongs to God rather than to Paul. The mishaps and trouble that Paul finds himself in is not proof of God's displeasure with him. It's proof that God is with him because if it were merely the strength of Paul that sustained him, Paul would have been dead a long time ago. 
And so if we began a three-point sermon last week in which we only got one point finished, uh, we saw that one point explained to say that the new covenant minister is humble. He's humble. He knows he's an old clay pot. And that's Paul's point here in verse 7. He claims to be nothing more than this weak vessel that's easily breakable, but it is this but it is this way because God will get the glory. The true minister of God is comfortable knowing that he's just an old clay pot. A Christian is comfortable knowing they're simply what God has made them to be. So what about you? Do you rejoice in this? Or do you struggle in the truth about your weakness? I'll tell you this. It is a point lamented on by the world with all of its pride. I was reading in Isaiah 45 earlier this week. In verse 9 he says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. You can see where Paul's drawing from this imagery from, can't you? Uh, Does the clay say to him who forms it? What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who does that. In other words, who are we to, to argue with God concerning how he has fashioned us or how he has made the world in which we live in? And Paul echoes Isaiah in Romans chapter 9 when he says this, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's foolish pride that denies what we really are. It's humility and satisfaction in Jesus Christ when you can embrace what we are in all of our ragged weakness. If you're satisfied in Jesus Christ, you'll embrace that weakness. So the first point is that the true minister of God is humble. The second point is that the true minister of God is invincible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he's humble, but he's also invincible. What, what tremendous balance there is here in this powerful idea that though we are weak and lowly we, and cannot do anything apart from God, yet we're invincible. Now, how is this so? Well, it's because we live for the purposes of God. And nothing can thwart those purposes. If God says I'm getting to this, if, if, if God says I'm getting from point A to point G, I will get there, no matter how hard it is along the way. No matter what I encounter, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to get to point G. No matter what men may do to us, in reality, they can do nothing unless God should see fit to hand us over. And even that's simply at his discretion, not because someone out-schemed us or someone out-schemed God. Let's take a look at this exhilarating and powerful statement from Paul in verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. So there's four of them here. That's the first one. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, what will really help us here is to remember back to the first chapter where Paul, if you remember in his introduction, uh, he's talking about how difficult it has been for him and his ministry team. He spoke over and over again about the affliction they experienced and he said that they were so utterly burdened beyond their strength that they despaired of life itself. They felt they had received the sentence of death. 
their hardship and their affliction was so great that it was more than they could handle. So they were forced, and this is what happens when you have more upon you than you can handle, it forces you to depend upon God, doesn't it? That's what it forces you to do. If your life is more than you, if what's going on in your life is more than you can handle, it forces you to give up or depend upon God, one or the other, doesn't it? That's what it forces you to do. And so in verses eight and nine, there are four statements regarding the invincibility of the minister of God. Paul has emptied himself of any personal strength or advantage. He didn't, when he preached, when he preached and he shared the gospel, he didn't try to reason people into becoming Christians. He just preached the gospel. He preached the cross and he admitted, I know it's, it's foolishness to, to so many people, but I preach the gospel and that's what I'm gonna do. And so, that, so he didn't try to, he didn't use his fabulous oratory in his preaching. He knew his appearance, the way he looked, was nothing that caused men to think respectably about him. In fact, it's remarkable when you trace Paul out just how offensive he was to the world, how you would look at him and think, you know, I don't think anything good can come from him. And, and, and how he always faced affliction and opposition. It was, it was a way of life for him. He had come to the point, Paul had, of total dependence upon God. And that's what made him so dangerous in the world. Because the power of God had taken over in his life. It wasn't Paul anymore that was this engine of success for him. It was God. So whatever hardship Paul faced, as bad as it was, it never crushed him. He was never forsaken. He was never destroyed. And that's why, we must, that's why we must embrace as Christians whatever difficulty arises in our lives on account of Jesus Christ. And here's why. This, this is why this, this is to be. You know, you, you know, we go to church and I haven't said a lot about it. I try not to. To me, man, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, goodness, the, the, the American, American success gospel, prosperity gospel, just, it is not here, is it? It's not right here. I mean, afflicted and crushed and perplexed and all of these things happen to you, to believers. And that's just what happens to it. But here's why you must embrace whatever difficult. And even, let me, let me, this, is, this, may be, this may be funny to say, this may be, seem strange to you to hear. But he, how about this? That you that you give thanks for even the hardship that comes in your life. Isn't that remarkable? Who does that? Who does that? But we're encouraged to do that in the scriptures. Why? Because for one, it causes you to depend upon God. Your greatest need is to love God and depend upon him, not be self-sufficient. So if, you're, if, you're, if your legs are taken out from under you and you hit the ground, you know what? Then maybe that's good for you. Did you say, you know, all right, Lord, I need you more than I have been depending upon you. And here's the other reason. And this is the other reason why you embrace hardship and difficulties and trouble in your life and give thanks to God for it. Because when we get afflicted or perplexed or persecuted, 
And then it becomes obvious that we are weak and that we are nothing. Then people are going to have to explain the impact of our lives upon other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? People are going to say, okay, he's weak. He has nothing. And yet he's had this impact upon people. People have been changed because of her testimony, because of her fidelity to Christ and her trust in him. And no matter what that, that has happened to her, she has praised her God and told the gospel to people. And I'm telling you that in clinging to Christ through the hardest of times, it will draw people to Jesus. It will because God works in people who, that are dependent upon him. They will want what you have. There will be no other explanation for people when you are crushed, but that God has worked in you. That'd be their only possible answer for that. So look at these four statements in verses 8 to 9. In the first statement, I'm going to explain them from what the words meant in the original language as best I can for you. So that I help you just see the, how wonderfully God works through affliction and hardship and, and obstacles and, and, and difficulties in life. In the first statement, that word afflicted, where he says, right, what he says there, uh, we are afflicted in every way. It refers to being under great pressure is what the word means. Afflicted means being under great pressure. This was Paul's reality. Pressure was Paul's reality. He woke up every day and faced death. Someone was trying to take his life or someone was wanting to take his life. It was constant pressure, just making it through the day without being killed sometimes. Additionally, he had the pressure of all the churches that he was ministering to. You, you've, you, you, most, you have been with me through most of these sermons. And don't you just see how Paul just, he loves his church. And the fact that these false teachers have risen up and have caused someone to go straight has caused him great distress and hardship and pressure coming down on, on him. And there were these other things that were pressuring Paul as well. And all that, Paul says this. We were afflicted. We were pressured. We were, we were it was coming down on us. But we were not crushed. He has been pressured but never crushed. And God caused him to triumph in every case. In the second statement, Paul says he was perplexed, right? What's he say there? Perplexed but not driven to despair. Perplexed. That word perplexed means to be at a loss or at wit's end or despondent. And, and Paul here is actually doing a word, word play uh, here as the word perplexed and despair mean the same thing. So if, you, if we spoke Greek, we would get it. We would get it a little bit better than coming out of the English here. Um, but, but the word for despair is a, just a little different it means an intensification of the word perplexed. So perplexed and, in, in other words, to translate it out, what he's trying to say here is, for us to understand it better, we were at a loss, but not absolutely at a loss. Does that make sense? We were at a loss, but not absolutely at a loss. In the uh, third statement, 
there uh, where he says in verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. Um, in the third statement, uh, uh, the word persecution there, think of this way, means to stalk. <laughs> I mean, this is what Paul's going through in it. He's being stalked and hunted. That's what the word means. Stalked and hunted by his enemies. Every day Paul gets up, his life is in danger. There was always a plot to kill him, but he was not forsaken. He was not left alone. He was saying that his pursuers, could, that they could chase him all that they wanted to and try to corner him, but he would be delivered. And then fourthly, Paul says he was struck down. The word means like to strike somebody down with a weapon or a hard blow. It's a word that you would use in combat or wrestling when you know the knockout punch or the, the pin comes. And Paul's saying he has been knocked down and he has been pinned, but he's not been destroyed. Yeah, I remember that uh, movie... Uh, I don't just but Raging Bull there, and he Jake Lamotta, and he's and uh, what was the fighter? Was it uh, Sugar Ray uh, Robinson? Is that who it was? It was just beating the dog out of De Niro at the end. Uh, Jake Lamotta, and he says, uh, and I mean blood's going everywhere. And a referee stops the fight, and Lamotta walks off and says, "Yeah, but you didn't knock me down, did you? You didn't knock me down." <laughs> so whatever horrible things would happen to Paul is right to then say that God would not forsake him or abandon him and that he will not be lost from God and this is great comfort for all those who have come to pick up their cross and follow Jesus right that's great comfort for you and me you will not be abandoned or left by God you think about what you're called to be as a Christian if you read the Bible and take it for what it says and and we're sure to preach that here we don't be fooled by you know, making a profession of faith and then living your life any way you please. Don't be satisfied with a distracted life where you focus so much on yourself and your desires and accumulating things for yourself or getting so focused on leisure and entertainments while you never think about serving Christ and sacrificing for him or suffering reproach for him. No, you are called to, this is what the Bible says, to pick up your cross and follow him. That's what I have to tell you, isn't it? Not to come to some weak faith and, oh, yeah, sure, I'll raise a hand and repeat a prayer and, and then I'm in. No, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. This is a reference to the difficulty of being a Christian. And I'm not telling you that you will face what Paul faced. It's, we're probably not ever going to do that. But I am telling you that if you did, it'd be worth it. That's what I'm telling you. If you face what Paul faced, it'd be worth it. According to Paul, following Christ gets you hunted, stalked, struck down at a loss. <laughs> and how remarkable it is that he faced all of this. And Paul soldiered on day after day after day, year after year in this and it could only be that God was with him. You know what he gave up in life for Christ, and it was all worth it. 
God was magnified in his life and he will be in yours as well when you embrace this kind of hardship for his sake. Think of this. What could they threaten Paul with? Death? Well, he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what he said. In fact, I would say Paul would have rather died and gone home to be with Christ and to endure what he was enduring. <laughs> so what can they threaten you with? I was uh, recently in a conference of pastors, pastor friends of mine. I was in Charleston. And um, we were listening to a presentation by one pastor as he was talking about an initiative to go into uh, uh, poorer countries where there were devoted converts to Jesus Christ and teach them the Bible. Uh, the, um, the pastors in the church teach them the Bible and the gospel message so well that they could go home and pastor their own people, serve their own people, disciple their own people in a better way than they could before. Um, in these countries that we're talking about, uh, these are, we're talking about here uh, where pastors are who don't have books. They don't have access to the internet. Uh, in some cases, they can't even read. I mean, you imagine that going to a place and taking 10 days and actually trying to teach pastors who don't even know how to read how to know the Bible and explain the Bible and disciple people. And so they're in desperate need of instruction. And so the pitch was this, that a pastor and a couple of pastors, you know, a team would fly into a country and spend 10 days with these brothers and training them in the Bible so that they could go and minister well to their people. And it sounds like uh, the kind of thing that a church needs to be doing. And the speaker talked about the danger of going particularly with, within the flight, with the flights in, within the country. You know, so you fly to a country in a normal plane, right? That's not the problem. But when you get there, you're going into a country uh, that that's poor and so to get from you know you're still several hours away you know how you get there by by rickety plane that's how you you get there so you jump on a rickety plane and you walk into the airport there and and they're selling it life insurance to people getting on these planes and he and, and the guy speaking said you get on the you get on the plane and 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 you're thinking i'm never going to see my family again you know that sort of thing uh, our uh, friend Justin Williams from, from Salyersville, he was in that meeting with me. And afterwards, I, I asked him what he thought about it. And he said, I'm all in. He said, what can they threaten us with? Heaven? <laughs> and that's right. Because you're invincible. Because the will of God will not be trumped by human forces. God is with us in every place where we cling to him. And it is especially so in afflictions. He will not forsake us. Even if we're led to the circus and fed to wild beasts, your God will not forsake you. Thirdly and finally, the minister of God is sacrificial. Verses 10 to 12. <clears throat> Again, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, the life in you. You know, the centerpiece of the Christian gospel message is the dying and the life of Jesus Christ. And this message continues to be trumpeted in the life of missionaries and ministers. Paul has experienced the dying of Jesus in his body. 
is Jesus was afflicted, wasn't he? That's, this is what happened to Jesus was. He was afflicted. He was bewildered. He was persecuted. He was humiliated. So was Paul. And this demonstration of the death of Jesus in Paul's life was for the express purpose of revealing the life of Jesus in his body. Paul gives his life up as an expression of this. He is handed over in affliction to demonstrate the death of Jesus. And then he is delivered time and again to illustrate the life of Jesus. And this life of Jesus is experienced in the grace that comes to the Corinthian people in preaching the gospel. So he says there, doesn't he, that death is at work in us, but life in you. So he's perplexed, he's crushed, and all these things are happening to him. But the gospel is coming to the Corinthian people. That means life, the life of Jesus is coming to them. And so um, they, they experience this grace as they, uh, uh, God calls them out of darkness and out of the deadness of their sin. And they receive the good news and they turn to Jesus Christ. So while we know that only Christ dies to reconcile sinners to God, Paul wasn't reconciling any sinners to God through his death, yet Paul demonstrates the, of the death of Christ in his life as well as the resurrection of Christ. Now daily, Paul uh, is faces this affliction. Someone's always trying to kill him. And Paul's saying here, and this is what I want us to catch here as we get ready to close up. He's saying that it's not really him. It's not really him they want to kill. You know who they want to kill? They want to kill Jesus. That's who they really want to kill. Paul is so much renowned for his elegance in rhetoric and his preaching. When he preached, he simply preached the cross. He reserved his superior intellect for the writings that he gave to the church. He was stooped over. He had scars on his body. It's, it seems he was afflicted in his eyes. They may have been bulging. And so he didn't have this physical presence that intimidated people and caused people to say, you know, that guy's got to die. He'll have the whole world fall on him. Look at him. He's like a, a Alexander the Great come again. No. So why did they want to kill him? It was that they wanted to kill the Savior, he proclaims. That's why. And since they can't kill Jesus, they try to kill Paul because he proclaims them. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen to his followers, isn't it? He warned them in several places that just as they were persecuting and trying to kill him, so too would they come after anyone who was his disciple. So when they feed Christians to the beasts or imprison them or impale them and light them on the roadways or burn them at the stake, that what they are trying to really, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to kill Jesus. This is the response that comes when people are confronted with the real Jesus. You see, there is this watered down Jesus that a lot of people like. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. But he's not the real Jesus. They may have, some of his attributes may be there, but he, the Jesus that a bunch of people like, oh, I like the teachings of Jesus. I don't like the Christians so much. No, you don't know the real Jesus. You don't know the real Jesus. If you did, you wouldn't like him. <laughs> He's, they paint him as weak. They paint him as effeminate and is affirming people in their sins. The only forcefulness that comes out of Jesus is reserved for the people that are judging them. That's the Jesus that they like. It's not the Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament knew that what people thought of his message. He warned the disciples there would be even a, come a day when their own families would turn against them because of him and, and, his, and his message. No one will turn against you because you have a Christ that encourages you to live your best life now and who welcomes people to continue their sin. They'll say, oh, I like that. 
That's pretty good. I get to be me, and, and heck, I, I might even get rich off the gospel. That's not too bad. But they will rage against the Jesus of Scripture. He is the one that has come and said of us that we're great sinners, and it's not okay that we're great sinners. He's called us to forsake our sins and pick up our cross and follow him. And it's not a call for us to go out and protest for social justice. And I'm sorry, but it's not. But it's a call to preach righteousness and salvation from our sins only through him. And the world hates this message and it hates Jesus and they'll seek to silence him. And if you're a mouthpiece for Christ, then they will seek to silence you. But church, it is our job to proclaim the death of Jesus in our bodies. If need be, we proclaim it when we embrace him and when we forsake the world. We proclaim it when, the, when we would rather suffer the shame and reproach of our friends and our family so that Christ may be pleased and honored with the truth that we live and speak. And when Christ is our portion and our satisfaction and our one great desire, then the life of Jesus is then shown in us. It's only in dying to ourselves that the life of Jesus will be seen. Church, there are very distinctive lines being drawn right now in our culture today. And it's imperative that we die to the world and live to Jesus Christ, right? That means that we know what we believe and why we believe it and we stick to it even when there's this great pressure pushing down on us to conform us to this world. So these three things are what we've uncovered today. You are an easily broken clay pot with great treasure in you so that it's clear that God gets the glory. When you are pressured and hunted and struck down, you are not forsaken. God is with you. And your life is meant to be lived by proclaiming the death of Christ so that his life may be seen. Right? Let's go out in this world being convinced of these things so that Christ may be glorified in our lives, right? Right, right. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, it's so sharp and it pierces us and cuts both ways and we need it, Lord. And we thank you for the example of Paul and we see in this passage and in 2 Corinthians here the war, God, of the world against Christ and the world will be against us if we proclaim Jesus if we proclaim truth so Lord we are weak and we are scared and anxious we ask you this be strong in us give us courage help us Lord and I pray this day that if there's anyone who needs this Savior that has never received him before and they're convinced of their sins and that Christ is their way, that they'll be saved from their sins and live and pick up their cross and follow Jesus. This I pray in Christ's precious name and amen. Please stand with me and sing hymn number 15, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. God has been so kind to us. We are thankful to him. If he calls you 
today for salvation through Jesus Christ, you know that you can come and talk with me and I will pray with you about what it means to be a Christian as we stand and as we sing.